0: That's why we can gather and sing Lord, that's why we actually Can provide in True encouragement to one another Though we are, are Virtually powerless to change One another's circumstances Lord, we have hope Because we know Our hope is not in our power Nor is it in our circumstances It's in you Lord, we know these things convictionally We know them because your word reveals it to us but Lord, we want to know them deeper. So that we are but flesh and blood, we don't put confidence in our words. We don't put confidence even openly in our friends or even ourselves, because all those things fail. But Your Word, Your Word is trustworthy. And we know it's it's by your word that we have life. For man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. But it's also by your word that we have hope. And by your word that we are led. And so I pray that you would be merciful to us and gracious to us. That you would lead us. As a church, you would lead us as individuals. That we might rightly understand how we are to live in light of your revelation. So we ask for your assistance, even as we look at your word this morning. pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. George Jeffries was a notoriously brutal judge who lived during the Puritan era. Am I not? I think I'm, I'm going through. I think we're good. It's not consistent. That's weird. I'm just not consistent. Maybe that's the problem. Starting again with George Uh, Jeffreys, He was a judge uh, in the Puritan era in England, and he was notoriously brutal. Uh, He was known as the hanging judge, and he actually presided over the blood assizes during the reign of King James II. And he was an ardent, ardent enemy of the Puritans, justly And upon entering court one day, Judge Jeffries pointed to a man that was about to be tried and he lifted his cane that he always held with him and he pointed to the man and he says, there is, a, there is a rogue at the end of this cane. To which the condemned responded to him. At which end, Judge? The one acting as judge should have more carefully Judged himself before so freely casting judgment upon others. And this is also what Job should have done. Because as you know, as we've seen, Job in his stress, in his affliction, he questioned the goodness and righteousness of God. He actually cast down God's righteousness in order to lift up, to defend his own righteousness before his friends. Last week, we looked at Job, uh, God's first response to Job. He gave a speech to Job to help Job recognize and understand that he doesn't understand everything. And if God were, tried to, were to explain all that he was doing in anybody's life, let alone Job's life, Job wouldn't have the ability to understand it, nor would he have the power to do anything about it. Again, Job had accused God of acting unrighteously toward him to defend his own righteousness. Righteousness. And Job acknowledged at the very end of that speech of God that he wouldn't speak against God anymore, that he would shut up. He would, he would sit in silence, which was a good step in the right direction. But you'll, you'll know that he actually never admitted that he was wrong. He just said he would shut up. Nor did he fully repent. And this is actually why God gives another speech to Job. Job adds still more to learn regarding his own ignorance and his impotence. So in God's second speech, he points Job's attention to his impotence over the world and over some ancient creatures known as behemoth and Leviathan. Let's look first of all at Job's impotence over the world. Beginning in verse 6. The Lord asks or responds to Job out of the storm and says, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. I remember th- last week I mentioned that when a person girded up their loins, they would, it was an action of getting ready for battle or getting ready to get into a fight. And so what it shows is that the, the fight wasn't over. Job had not yet yielded to God, he was only willing to be quiet. And so the bell rings again and they get ready for round two. God asks Job in verse 8, Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. God God here is essentially asking Job to dress up and play God. Job, if you think you can be God, sounds like it based upon your accusations, well, let's see you dress up and play the part. Right? And in playing God, he would also need to show some ability to exercise power and judgment over his creatures. Right? Because when they step out of line, he would need to hold put them in check. And if you can't control those things which you have authority over, then your authority is not going to last very long. And that's what God wants Job to realize. So he says in verse 11, pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Tread down the wicked where they stand. And actually, verses 11 and 12 form what's called a chiasm. And the middle emphasis of that Structure is on the, the, the phrase Look or see God's point is Job, you don't have even the ability To see all the wicked things around you Let alone to do anything about it In fact, even if you were to see wickedness The best you could do is just Get angry and make a scene Like a toddler You can't actually do anything about it Like I can When God gets angry He can create absolute devastation Job He just sounds like a whiny toddler. It says in verse 13, hide them in the dust together, bind them in in the hidden place. This is a reference to the grave. So God says, if you can do all these things in verse 14, then I will confess to you that your, your own right hand can save you, Job. God's point is, if you can demonstrate, Job, that you can do a better job than I can, well, then I will listen to your complaint. If not, Know your place. I'm the creator. I'm your king. You're the creature. And so when God puts things this way, Job's folly is pretty evident. Right? It's very easy to criticize those in authority over us. When, we, when things don't go our way, when we don't like the decisions they make. Right? It's very easy to play armchair quarterback than to actually grab a football and play in the NFL. And we have to be honest with ourselves here. If, If we're truly going to understand what God's trying to teach Job, we need to recognize that all of us have this very seed of pride when we criticize others, especially those who are put in authority over us. Right? We assume we know better. We could handle things better. We could do better than those whom God has placed in authority over us. This is why students complain about their teachers. Or why teenagers complain about the decisions of their parents. Employees complain about their bosses, enlisted men, their officers. Citizens, their politicians. Right? I mean, c- Criticizing authorities, I would say, is our national pastime. I mean, that's, that's what most of the news is actually about. And note that when God calls Job a fault time finder in verse 2, that's not a commendation. And nor should we think that we deserve any commendation because we're able to point out the faults of people in authority. And that's not to say that authorities always make good decisions. Often they don't. In fact, often they are bad at what they do. But it's arrogant to criticize them and to assume that if we were in that position, we would always make the right decision. We would never make mistakes. And and, and everything we do would work out according to our plan. And everybody would be happy with us. And remember that this it was this very sin actually that led to Korah's rebellion against Moses in Numbers sixteen. In fact, I'd like to direct your attention there, Numbers sixteen. We looked at this about a year ago. Number sixteen, beginning in verse eight. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service in the tabernacle of of Yahweh and to stand before the congregation and minister to them? And that he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it's against Yahweh that you and all your company have gathered. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? As Paul says in Romans 13, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Right? Even though in America, grumbling and complaining is common, it's a regular activity, even if it's seen as a virtuous activity, this doesn't actually correspond to what the Bible teaches. Such sin needs to be put to death. And Beginning in verse 15, God, drew, God draws Job's attention to a creature called Behemoth because he wants to continue to help Job recognize he's in no place to criticize God. If you, know, if you can't control Behemoth, you can't control Leviathan, who do you think you are, Job? The word Behemoth actually means Super beast, uh, bahima is the word for cow or bovine bull. Uh, it can be translated beast. Uh, when it's bahima, if it's pluralized, which, like a majesty of plural, it, it means it's a super beast. And most modern commentaries assume that, that God is speaking of a hippopotamus here. But as you look at the description, that, that doesn't fit, especially when you see the tail described as a cedar. So most likely, he's he's referring to a giant dinosaur like a barontosaurus. God begins by pointing out Behemoth's power and size. Behemoth is so massive, he's totally unconcerned about weaker creatures like men. Verse 15, Behold now, Behemoth, which I made as well as you, he eats grass like an ox. Behold now, his strength is in his loins, and his power in the muscles of his belly he bends his tail like cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. Limbs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Let his maker bring near his sword. God's point is only I, his maker, would be willing to confront behemoth in violence and make the animals submit to me. In verses 20 and 23, 23, God explains that even the landscape, the whole entire landscape around Behemoth submits to him. And you put this in contrast to men. Even though God has appointed men to rule over the world and bring it into subjection, we fight against weeds and against the climate. Everything's against us as we try to even grow a garden. Behemoth is totally unworried. Verse 20, surely the mountains bring him food. All the beasts of the field play there. Under the lotus plants, he lies down in the covert of reeds in the marsh. The lotus plants cover him with shade. The willows of the brooks surround him. The landscape submits the behemoth by giving him comfort, shelter, food. Whereas men need to build shelters for themselves in order to survive anywhere. But behemoth, he's fine outside in any environment. He's content. Even when floods come, he's not worried at all. But when floods come upon men, they panic, they flee. God's point is, is if super beast, super cow is greater than you, Job, who do you think you are? And even behemoth Job is impotent compared to Leviathan. So then he brings up Leviathan. And most commentators assume this is referring to a crocodile Which I think is a total head-scratcher Because it really doesn't fit the description The text clearly describes some sort of sea serpent It could be some seafaring dinosaur like a plesiosaur uh, I think he's actually describing some sort of sea dragon the, the, the beast, Leviathan, actually is described as breathing fire In verses 18 and 19 Somebody might say, well, well, no such animal exists. Well, maybe not today, but it did then. And, and we get to remember the point of the book of Job. God's trying to help Job. Job, you don't see everything. You don't understand everything. And, and with your limited knowledge, you think you can explain to me how things should be? I think God even ends his speeches here for people centuries to come after Job we would question God's description about these creatures and say, "Well, I can't believe in that because I've never seen them." I think there's a warning here. Just because you haven't seen something doesn't mean you know everything. In fact, it kind of proves we don't. Again, we need to recognize who's talking here. It's not Elihu, it's not Eliphaz, it's not Job. Who's talking? God's talking. I think God knows a thing or two about all of his creatures. Moreover, notice at the end of this speech, Job doesn't say, well, God, that's not fair. You're comparing me to mythical creatures or creatures that died how many years ago? Job doesn't say that. He shuts his mouth because he recognizes the truth of what God's saying. And we actually know from other texts in the Bible that Leviathan is a representative of Satan the serpent of all serpents. In fact, in Isaiah 27, God tells us that he himself will slay the Leviathan. Isaiah 27:1. in that day, Yahweh with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. And you cross reference this to Revelation 20 that describes Christ's return It says, And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. So when God is referencing Leviathan here, it's very, very purposeful. Because we need to recall who Job's true enemy was. Right, We saw in chapter 1 and two, 2 that the one who brought all these afflictions on Job wasn't God. It was Satan. And yet, who did Job accuse of attacking him? He accused God. And what could Job do in all these afflictions? He couldn't do anything about it anyway. And God once showed recognize if you can't stand up against your real enemy, Leviathan, Job, Who do you think you are to complain to me? If you can't stand up against your own enemy Leviathan and you would in turn attack the only one who can stand up to Leviathan, you are the most foolish of all fools. Because I'm your only hope of salvation. So God asked Job in verse one, can you fish for Leviathan, Job? Maybe you can talk to him with, soft words you can persuade him to submit to you right God's point is you can't do that obviously but I can because Satan can't do a darn thing without me giving him permission we saw that in chapter 1 and 2 but also we see this in the demons when they encountered Christ in Mark chapter 5 we call that demon possessed man who was possessed by multiple demons called legion And the man with the demons begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Verse 11, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him. They begged Christ saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And so Christ gave them permission. The point is they didn't have freedom to do what they want. They had to ask, they had to beg God for permission. Behemoth, Leviathan, all the demons are completely under God's absolute control. But Job, you got control over none of these things. So God asked Job in verse 5, Will you play with them as with a bird? Will you bind them with, for your maidens? Will the traders bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? His point is, is Leviathan your pet? Can you catch him and give him as a gift? And even if a person wanted to try and catch Leviathan or even to hunt him and try to pierce him with a spear, it would have no effect. It would only annoy him. It would only get him angry. Verses 7 through 10. You notice what God says in verse 11. Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Does that quote sound familiar? Cited by Paul in the book of Romans. Romans. Romans 11 it's after Paul had finished explaining his entire gospel that he preaches. He says in Romans 11, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Now, this is Paul's doxological conclusion to the whole of his gospel. And Paul's point in Romans is that only God could have thought of such a majestic, a majestic, wise way to bring about his purposes in the world. Nobody saw this coming. And in fact, that's what God was trying to communicate to Job way back, centuries earlier. Way back here in Job 42. Job, I'm not your enemy. I'm your only hope in this world. Because I alone am God. I'm the only one that can save you. But you have made yourself my enemy by accusing me of injustice. I'm not your enemy. In the rest of chapter 41, he continues to describe the impotence of man In comparison to Leviathan, Leviathan has impenetrable natural defenses, 12 through 17. He even breathes fire, 18 through 21. Leviathan isn't scared of any creature. In fact, even the mightiest of hunters have their hearts melt before him, verses 23 to 25. And then in 26 to 29, God says, All the weapons of men are like toys to Leviathan. They're like BB guns against the tank. Doesn't affect him at all. He's impenetrable. Sounds like a crocodile, right? More like Godzilla. Really, you've got to scratch your head. Where do people come up with these interpretations? Well, I've never seen a Leviathan, so it must be a crocodile. Missing the whole point of what God's communicating. here. Verse 34. He summarized everything we need to know about Leviathan. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. God's point here is twofold. First, he wants Job to recognize his impotence. If he he can't control Leviathan, he can't control evil. All he can do is complain about it. And if men can't control creatures, they they certainly can't control God's purposes in their lives. We we need to know our relative impotence so that that we would fully surrender to God's omnipotence. We need to know we need Him to take care of us. We can't take care of ourselves. And, And secondly, he wants Job to understand again who leviathan is ultimately all right in describing leviathan satan is king over all the sons of pride he's implying that job is more like satan than god because job has lifted himself up in pride and accusing god just like satanas The accuser did in chapter one and chapter two. And when Job finally sees this, that he is sided with his real enemy and attacked the only one who has the power to actually save him. When he realizes this, finally, that is when he humbles himself completely with words of repentance. And that brings us to Job chapter forty two. Job finally gets it. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He's saying, God, I recognize you alone are omnipotent and you can do whatever you want and whatever you want will be accomplished. I realize that now. And then he quotes the first words that came out of God's mouth in chapter 38 in that first speech God gave. Job says, You asked me back then, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? It's a good question. Therefore, I have declared that which I do not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. He quotes God again in verse 14 You said to me, Hear now, I will speak, I will instruct you, and you instruct me. So now I realize, verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you and therefore I retract and this is the key point I repent in dust and ashes that's what Job needed to recognize he had no right to complain and question the goodness sovereignty and justice of God so he not only confesses he was wrong he he repents In fact, he he acknowledges what Job, or sorry, what Satan was reluctant to acknowledge in chapters 1 and 2, that God was right. That God's always right. God had a purpose in allowing Job to suffer. But there is no way that Job could ever have understood what that purpose was. Because it went beyond, way beyond, Job's personal afflictions. Because again, Job's suffering became an impetus for this this scripture which we have received that we too might learn. There's no way Job could have even had a concept of what God would do not only in providing a scripture for us to understand God's sovereignty and power, but also to understand our greatest need. Remember, God allowed Job to encounter suffering in order to help Job, and by extension, us, he allowed this for us to realize what our greatest needs actually were. Right? It was in the midst of Job's suffering that he realized what his true needs actually were. It wasn't his possessions. It wasn't his children. It was death to this life. Forgiveness for our sins. Chapter 721. We need a mediator and a redeemer. A God-man who would intercede for us and vindicate us, chapter nine thirty three, and a resurrection from the dead, Job 14, 14, also Job 19. Right? God wanted Job to realize that only he could provide those things. Job, your greatest needs are not just comfort and peace. It's not just maintaining the things that you have. Your greatest need is salvation from this life. And only I can provide that. And if I use suffering to help you, or your eyes be opened, it's a mercy to you. And it's not just a mercy to you, it's, it's a mercy to anybody who would learn about what I've been trying to teach you in the last 42 chapters. The deliberations are over. The court is now closed. God has declared... Righteous by Job. And Job acknowledges his foolish pride. And since God's purpose here has been accomplished, the court's closed. It's at this point that now God is going to vindicate Job and restore to him his fortune. fortune. The narrative, you'll notice, picks up again in verse 7. Job's vindication begins by God's confrontation of the three friends. But he only addresses Eliphaz directly. And probably this is because Eliphaz was the oldest and the leader of the the bunch. It says in verse 7, It came about after Yahweh had spoken these things to Job that Yahweh said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. This is a stunning statement, after especially the last four chapters. Because God has just finished royally dressing Job down because he had falsely accused God of being unjust and unwilling to deal with wickedness. And what Job's three friends actually had said previously about God was more or less accurate. They never describe God in an inaccurate way. If you look at their words, they're accurate words. Again, many of their many of their descriptions of God are repeated later on in Scripture. They never accuse God of injustice, impotence, or failing to review the wicked as Job did. So the question remains, why would God say that Job spoke rightly and they spoke wrongly. And we would expect the opposite. I think it's good to remember where Job's friends erred. They erred in their simplistic assumption that that bad things only happen to bad people and good things only happen to good people. The, the principle of divine retribution. And they sought, to imply, they sought to apply that principle to Job's situation and did so completely inaccurately. and accurately. Was, and it was their application of that principle to Job's situation that led Job eventually to doubt the goodness, righteousness, and justice of God. And God knows it. And so what this tells us is it's not just our words themselves that we'll have to give an account for on the day of judgment. It's the implication of our words, the application of our words. I think I'd say even the tone of our words, because we know we communicate a lot more than just the rigid meaning of a word. This is why a lot of conflicts happen in marriage, right? The person says, well, I only said this, but everybody knows what was meant by what was explicitly said. Well, God's not going to be fooled. And he wasn't fooled by these three friends. It was their error that led Job to eventually mistrust God's character because before they showed up, Job fully trusted God completely. And God's wording here is meant to be stunning and surprising so that we would recognize, we would recognize the folly that can even result from good theology. What I mean is knowing a little bit of truth does not mean that we know all truth. And that can be a very easy trap, especially for Christians to fall into. We know what the Word of God says, but that's about where our knowledge ends. If even we know that. We need to recognize the error of these wise men was was very severe. Look at verse 7. Again, God says my wrath is kindled against you and your two friends. Now therefore take for yourself seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly because you have not spoken to me what is right. The fact that they must offer both seven bulls and seven rams symbolize that they need complete purification. They need both seven bulls and seven rams. Number seven, completion. But you need two different kinds of animals. And notice also, God, even if they do that, God doesn't say he will then accept them. He says he will only accept Job's prayer on their behalf. The point is, they are not in fellowship with God. Only Job is. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, and Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namathite, went and did as Yahweh told them. And Yahweh, notice this, accepted Job. The implication here is that they were forgiven because Job, who was in fellowship with God, was willing to pray for them. And the same pattern is reflected in Jesus' prayer on the cross. When he said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they're doing, and also Stephen, when he was prayed for the men who were stoning him, when he said and falling on his knees he cried out the loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. But there is great power. Don't doubt the power of prayer, especially on behalf of unbelievers in your life. God, God listens to our prayers. Our prayers are effectual. And we're supposed to see that here. God restores these men because Job prayed for them. And this brings us to Job's full restoration. In verse 10, it says, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And Yahweh increased all that Job had twofold. Verse 10 explicitly states that God doubled everything that Job had. And we see that. All these possessions that were listed, they're listed there in verse 12, are double what he used to have that was taken away from him. But then in verse verse 13, it says this. He had another seven sons and three daughters. How many sons and daughters did he have before? Seven sons and three daughters, but it says he doubled them. You'd expect 20 more children, not just 10, especially when you know that this is what Job cared about more than anything else that he possessed were his kids. Well, I think the answer is it's implied here. I think the answer is because Job never actually lost them because he's going to see them again. When that moment that he prophesied in Job 19 would come about, when he would see them with his own eyes in the flesh, he would see them in the flesh when God resurrects them on the last day. Because God would send them a redeemer who would save them from their sins and their consequences. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, Who gave himself a ransom for all Which is the testimony given at the proper time And then in Ephesians 1 it says In him In Christ we have redemption Through his blood The forgiveness of our trespasses According to the riches of his grace Which he lavished upon us In all wisdom and insight Making known to us The mystery of his will What Job didn't understand We understand now With the revelation We understand what God was up to All this time God has made known the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, including Job and his children, all 20 of them. And you could say that the purpose of the book of Job is God is trying to make it clear that He is going to set the record straight. For all time, the truth regarding his character and sovereignty. And he does this because he knows that there's going to be time in our lives when we, we don't trust him. When we do doubt his sovereignty, when we do doubt his goodness, we do doubt his wisdom as it gets played out in our lives. When things don't just go not according to our plans, they just don't make any sense on how God could possibly use such evil for good. He knows that. And so he gave us this book that in such time we wouldn't doubt him. We wouldn't doubt the only one we can run to for salvation. Rather, we would trust him. The most important thing that we can do in life is to trust our creator, to fear him and to keep his commandments. And to know, to know with absolute certainty that no matter what happens to us in this life? It's not an accident. It's not without purpose. And whatever happens is directed by an all wise, all good, absolutely powerful God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us to our own wisdom and understanding. That you have given us, not just here in the book of Job, but throughout your word, a multitude of promises that we can cling to. And so much truth that we see in Job is repeated again and again throughout Scripture and in, in deeper ways and fuller ways. Lord, we think of especially what you've revealed to us in your purpose in Christ, your plan for redemption. And Lord, we know. We know now that you are good and your purposes are good and you are absolutely trustworthy. Deepen our conviction in this truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It's very fitting we then get to celebrate the Lord's table together as a body of believers.